is the Chiron podcast number 20 for the month of March. This is Ryan Caldwell, the CIO of Chiron Investment Management. And today I'm joined by my two colleagues, Grant Saris and Brian Cho. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. Good afternoon. For our listeners, um, we thought we had to change the tone a little bit coming off last month's podcast, which was... For those of you that listened, a nice rendition of Sailing by Christopher Cross. Um, we thought for the month of March we might get people a little bit more excited again. So we came in with a little um, Van Halen, Everybody Wants Some, which I thought was actually topical for uh, maybe what we're going to talk about today, which is what everybody seems to want um, from a market characteristic perspective. And uh, obviously that's influencing our portfolios a little bit. So, um, Look, guys, I thought for this podcast, maybe what we would do um, is talk a little bit about um, two things that are affecting our work and, and um, kind of how we look at our strategy, um, momentum and dispersion. But where I wanted to kind of kick off and where I wanted to kick off was maybe something that's a little, maybe a little bit more headline-y, um, which I know I talk about all the time how much I hate talking about headlines, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, because we've kind of gotten a couple that I think are um, at least germane to the argument of the cycle and what could undermine the cycle. And I think the first one um, being this kind of recent um, reconcern or revitalization of inflation, the second being protectionism and trade tariff. Um, because I think actually those two things are roughly the markets got right as things to worry about. Um, and I think the reason we need to kind of make sure we're monitoring both of those is because both of those or you know, both of those individually or in conjunction um, really can work to undermine the construct of the cycle. Um, and, and I want to set the stage for that a little bit because it'll take us into when talking about momentum and dispersion. But again, when we think about the cycle, I think what we've been arguing is it's margins, not macro. Everybody, not everybody, but Market commentary is largely geared to macro outcomes because that that's what um, Wall Street thinks that people need to hear post the uh, financial crisis. But if you kind of look at the construct of corporate profitability, the issue is the real issue that's been driving stock price performance so you, well and above over macro is just how good the margins have been, by and large. Um, Brian's done a lot of work for us on this. Obviously, various others have written about it as well. But it's been one really big margin cycle. And again, the reason the margins are high for those of you that haven't spent a lot of time listening to the podcast is because we make a lot of things outside the U.S. Um, and Europe and Japan, i.e. we make them in emerging markets. So the businesses have had the ability to get really capital light. And because of free trade and globalism, that means you can import and push down your cost structure in a way that's led to this kind of geometric rise in margins relative to history. And I think not only they've risen relative to history, but their durability has been way better than anybody would have guessed, you know, coming off the bottom in 2008. And so when you think about undermining that cycle, obviously what are the couple of things that can blow that up? An inflationary impulse can definitely blow that up. Why? If we have an inflationary impulse in the U.S., it's going to be less efficacious for our trade partners like China, um, like um, Southeast Asia, who peg their currencies to the dollar to continue to do so. Because obviously monetary policy here would have to get very tight and restrictive. Um, and again, 
the transmission mechanism back and forth tends to work in a way that if we're deflationary, they're deflationary. If we're inflationary, they're inflationary. Because once you peg your currency, you're de facto accepting our monetary policy. So again, anything that threatens um, the pegged system is a problem. And again, the reason for that would be margins would start to come down under cost pressure and currency normalization. And then the second issue this that's obviously recently cropped up on trade tariffs and protectionism, that one's a little bit easier. Again, if we get into a protectionist mindset, again, it's a cost push for everybody that makes things. So not only U.S. companies, but European companies, emerging markets companies, everybody sees a margin squeeze in a protectionist environment. And again, going back to what's worked is we've had a really good profit cycle. That's what's kept equities going up. I know there's this notion that it's monetary policy and the Fed. Our argument has been, look at the margins, look at the cash flow. Stocks and credit follow cash flow. They don't follow economic economic outcomes, not nearly as closely as prognosticators would like them to. And so, Again, we were we do worry about these two things. So I do think that there is real uh, there is a real issue if we get into a protectionist um, environment. That's bad for equities and credit globally. There is nowhere to hide. There is nothing you can do. Again, that's going to be something that would really push us in our own strategy to think about being much more defensive because you really do lose you know available asset classes as places to hide. And then again, inflation that really puts the Fed well behind the curve, which makes them accelerate, is another issue that could really put vulnerability into the system. Um, and again, in a way that's really undermining to the margins. So that was uh, that's sort of the, I guess, setup, if you will, guys, kind of going into um, what I really wanted to talk about, which is, again, if you look at what's working from a capital markets perspective, and obviously Brian... Um, you know, gives us a preview of this really, really frequently. You know, the thing that jumps off the page at you, we talk a lot about this paradigm between growth and value, but the truth of the matter is the thing that's really mattered from a portfolio construction perspective is momentum. And so I wanted to talk a bit about momentum because it's got all sorts of connotations to it. Um, and obviously it's something we can, we can isolate quantitatively and find. And so maybe Grant, I'll start with you, and then Brian. I want to get into, um, you know, the I think the lead up question that everybody seems to ask with momentum. But I guess first with momentum, Grant, why? Na- I guess the why now? Why is momentum the thing that matters? And again, in our in your own security selection, as you think about your strategies and the strategy and emphasizing momentum. We're at a point in the cycle where this is actually fairly typical that momentum takes over, but maybe give our listeners just a quick of the why now and why it's not so surprising maybe that momentum is the thing that matters. Well, I think it it ties a little bit back to your margin uh, commentary up front um, and where we are in the cycle. So we've had a long cycle without not a very strong cycle, um, just kind of delving back to your, your margin comments, you know, the, the economic growth wasn't good, but earnings growth was really good, right? So you had um, profit growth at a multiple of economic growth that you don't normally see because you had incredible margin expansion. So we've kind of worked our way through that. Now we talked about, okay, then they layered on the tax cut, right? When maybe 
you were running out of momentum of the margin expansion. You were, you know, you're kind of dwindling down and then they gave you another way of expanding margins in this case on an after-tax margin basis, but you got a tax cut. So profit growth continued even even more. But we've talked about, okay, what, what does 19 look like versus 18 once you get that behind you? And so we're at a point where, yes, the economy is you know growing nicely, but companies are starting to spend a little bit more. They might be spending to keep up. And so, you know, you're, you're, to keep your earnings growth growing at the rate you've been growing it at is getting to be tougher and tougher. And so uh, at least it will be, I think, if you look out the next 12 months. Maybe it hasn't been the last 12 months. But when you look forward, it will get tougher and tougher to keep the kind of earnings growth rates going that you've had, which is when the market starts to narrow down into the companies that can do it. And so I think you know that's where the momentum is starting to build from, is the winners are starting to win at an increasing rate, and the market is starting to throw out companies that don't appear to be um, beneficiaries from here as you get late cycle and as you don't have the wind at your back might still be at your back, but it's not as strong as it was. So an example, we, we have a company in, and I won't name names, but you know they just reported a quarter where they beat significantly on the top line and they missed earnings. And you think, well, how can that happen? I mean, companies have been you know beating on the top line and the, and, and the incremental margins have been high and it's fallen through. So if you beat the revenue growth, which has been so hard to do for a long time, you can't beat the earnings growth, but that's going to happen more and more because of the cost inflation that you talked about. Once you start getting into a tighter and tighter system, it's harder to keep up and you're struggling just to make you know, the top line business become so good that it's hard to provide the margin. And so you know, that one falls by the wayside because they couldn't provide the earnings and cash flow growth um, that the market's been accustomed to. So that's just a micro example but I think, you know, you'll see that more and more. And so the market starts to say, well, who can really, you know, withstand the inflationary pressures and the margin pressures that might be coming? And it narrows down. And so momentum, uh, the market narrows into fewer and fewer winners. And that's when momentum kind of takes over. And I think, you know, we've been at that point here recently. It seems like it's picking up steam. And it can last for a varied amount of time. So I don't know how long it will last. It kind of depends on, uh, we've always said this, I mean, time kind of depends on how, on speed of how fast you burn it too. <laughs> so uh, if it really gets picking up and it happens in a real fast way, well, then the length of time will be less. If it happens kind of in a, in a steady, slow, but, but aggressively picking up and it lasts a little bit, could last a little bit longer if it doesn't burn itself out too fast. So that's what I would say about, uh, momentum. No, I I think that's a super helpful example because I do think um, I've heard even um, in talking to um, some of our listeners, clients, that exasperation, right? The top line picked up and numbers look, you know, the top line looked good. Numbers generally looked okay, but the company misses and the penalty's massive. And I think that point is a key point as we think about going forward is the market for eight years, has been misbelieving or disbelieved the margins could be sustainable. 
And that's been the wrong bet, right? Because they've been sustainable. We've compounded a lot of cash flow, which is really why you've been forced to buy equity and credit dips because you powered through. But again, and we talked about this, you know, we talked about this pre the tax cut is the risk that you have at this part of the cycle is everybody feels better because the economy is growing better. And to your point, the top line picked up. We saw, you know, 4Q S&P 500 top line was plus seven. Well, you haven't seen a plus seven since 2009 coming off the bottom, right? So a plus seven is a really good nominal number, but you have companies that have seen the top line acceleration, but again, they're getting kind of this cost push. And so the bottom line may not grow quite like the top line or, you know, what market's expectations are. So I think it's a good point or great example to bring up. This is how the market narrows, right? It's not it, It's not because, you know, if people just randomly identify um, companies. It, what happens is this narrowing process is just identifying those that can power through. So I thought what you said, Grant, was perfect. The market, and you can see this in the reward system and why companies have momentum, is the market saying that one can power through and that one can't. And again, it's not an economic point. Economics are fine and good and we got all that. But again, it's an expectations point relative to the valuation that you're paying for a cash flow stream. So I thought that was actually a really good point. Brian, where I wanted to go with you, which is, again, just to kind of come back to this because it's been so long. Um, it's really, we saw mini pocket in 06 and 07 where momentum took over in a certain part of the market, which was materials, energy, industrials, emerging markets. Those got momentum toward the end of the cycle, but not nearly like um, tech did in the late 90s or real estate in the late, or late 80s. What I wanted to talk to you about was, and for our listeners, just to kind of set the stage a little bit. Brian does an incredible amount of work for us um, across all the different kind of factors that we look at. And one of the things he did for us is that he looked across what we, what we call our super factors, the things that really drive security selection, and was kind of looking at those factors for their own sort of cheapness and richness. And so, you know, we talk about valuation dispersion all the time, like is cheap, cheap. And when cheap isn't cheap, there's nothing to do. Uh, there's nothing to do with cheap um, securities. But you looked across all of our. You looked across all of our factors. And the interesting thing that I thought in that work was the only thing that had some potency to it or efficacy. So again, we look at earnings quality. We look at valuation. We look at capital deployment. In your words, Brian, what you said to us was those are used up, which is another way of saying our quantitative work is not going to give you an edge because there's nothing there's no edge prevalent on an individual factor basis so there's not a lot to be gleaned there so you made two points one which was you know really sharpen your fundamental pencil because the weight is going to shift to the fundamental side of the house to figure out good from bad from here because quantitatively trying to glean something is getting harder and harder. And I think that's an important point for our listeners is that when you think about smart beta, when you think about just straight systematic strategies, that's another way of saying like they burned a lot of fuel and there probably isn't a whole lot left. So that's a little bit of a cautionary point. But Brian, the point about momentum that you made to us was that there's still some cheapness and that's a sloppy word so i know that there's some cheapness still associated with momentum and if you kind of looked at the chart 
the interesting thing to me, because you know, obviously given Grant and I's fundamental history, right, we came from a growth momentum shop. So we were trained to understand that, look at it, know it. If you kind of look at the chart, what you would see is that kind of momentum obviously drove all your returns from kind of 97 to 2000, like it spiked off the chart. That was obviously big tech and then the blow up that came after it. And you made this point at your prior firm, but you've made this point to us too, that basically trend following didn't work at all post-1999. Like it didn't work for, you know, almost a decade actually more than a decade, almost 15 years. And then all of a sudden, sort of, you know, kind of late 2015, you started to see momentum start to work a little bit as a strategy. And I only bring, I want to only want to dive into this to bring this up because again, we get a lot of questions about active management. One of the reasons active management has been better in the last year and a half is because all of a sudden momentum's working. And again, you have a whole group of portfolio managers, men and women that grew up late 90s, early 2000s, and they were taught to be trend followers. It didn't work very well for a long time, but all of a sudden it's kind of working again. And your point was like of all the factors that we look at, the one that still had some potency was momentum, which is not uncommon at the end of the cycle or you know, however you want to define end of cycle. And that again, when you're re- you know when you look at what you were looking for in security selection, you had to have a keen eye on the price trend. So maybe can you talk a little bit about t- dovetailing on what Grant said, like how much potency is left and how long does it last? Because I do get that question a lot from you know from our listeners and the and the base is like, okay, you're emphasizing momentum. But like, how long does that last? And you made some really, I think, good germane points to the investment team about how we should think about our time horizons and how we should think about security selection. So can you maybe touch on that? Yeah. So let me, again, start with the refresher to our listeners because uh, in terms of our security selection and also top-down models as our domain indicator and dispersion indicator, what we try to do internally in all my, all of our models is looking at the dispersion. And our security selection models are made up with the four so-called super factors. One is valuation, second is market reaction, third is earnings quality, fourth is capital deployment. First to analyze investors' behavior, latter two uh, you are used to gauge how management are behaving and we're trying to exploit the alpha out of those four metrics. And as you pointed out, when we look at the dispersions of valuation, which we talked about so many times in our podcast in the past, they're very compressed. So another way to say it then is there are very little difference among the stocks and securities in terms of valuation. What's interesting about that fact is that means there's no value to unearth. There's not much left there. That's how you should think about it. And when we extended that same exercise to capital deployment and earnings quality, what we see is a similar picture. We had some shot at unearthing uh, those alphas starting at the beginning of, or should I say end of 2016, which we've seen some of. And then what happened since then is the market 
has used up those potential differences. So now when we look at dispersion within earnings quality, all capital deployment is very compressed. So another way to say it then is managers are behaving in a similar manner. They're pulling the same levers and they're generating similar margin pictures. Of course, there are big differences, but difference between the companies relative to the history are smaller. So finally, if you think about what I just said and put it all together, it's saying, okay, if you do traditional fundamental research and you look at across many, many, many companies, what you will find is that the differences in terms of numbers are smaller. So what stands out is the fact that the market reaction component that we have, uh, which measures price trends as well as revisions as well as volume and the volatility, that component still shows wider dispersion in our uh, uh, way of looking at the world. So it, put it another way, it's saying, okay, there are big enough differences. And as Grant pointed out earlier, you know, momentum works now because of where we are in terms of profit cycle and because of where we stand. So we're, we're standing at a place where you need to be a little bit more nimble, and you have, which means that you have to have a little shorter horizon than uh, what you have done before. Because let me just point out again, you know, when you think about value and earnings quality and capital deployment, these are the metrics that works itself out over many years, one to three to five years. Now we're at a part where all the companies look similar in those metrics, so what's, what makes them look different is how the market is responding to these inputs that you're getting. So how other people think about the particular security matters as much as how you think about it. So another way to think about it is we're at a stage where uh, uh, tiptoeing is more proper. So we need to be quick on our feet. We need to be able to turn faster. So our horizon has to be shorter. No, I think that was the point. Um, uh, that was. I'm glad you made that. That was the point I really wanted to hammer home, which is, again, we tend to have, you know, when we think about our strategy, this kind of 12 to 24 month time horizon on sort of implementation. And um, just to reemphasize Brian's point, I mean, his point to us has been you're going to have to have a quicker trigger. Um, I think Grant's message to the fundamental team, you know, has been, you know, I, I go back to, uh, you know, I go back to an old, um, an old running, you know, kind of analogy for this is sort of cockroach theory. When something has momentum and it loses it, so you see the first cockroach, there's going to be more. And your point, Grant, has been shorten up. Like once the company misses or momentum is lost, whatever the news event, catalyst, whatever, once you lose it, it gets incredibly hard at this point in the cycle to regain it. And the market, again, does this really harsh job of sort of narrowing down, um, narrowing down security. So I, I think that was the message I wanted to get across, which is fundamental pencil has to be sharper. Um, and you're looking for reasons to get rid of things. You're not looking for reasons to stay long things. That's and just maybe a simple way to think about it is, you know, again, when you, you we talk about this domain work, but when you get to kind of full growth and you kind of get to momentum, we, we're looking for reasons to exclude. 
when we're value investors, we're looking for reasons to include, and we're sort of trying to ignore the noise and bad news. Not so much now, right? We've all we've got to kind of sit on the other side of the ledger, and so it does all get harder, and it does get more fickle. And Brian, again, your point's been shortened up, and Grant, your point has been, you know, don't stick around and try to double down on the things that you know the things that lose their momentum because it's it tends to be a losing strategy at this point in the cycle. So that was kind of the point I wanted to hammer home with momentum, and I think Brian. You know, you bring up a good point, and I just want to kind of wrap with this just at the end is that, again, the reason why you have to kind of, you know, think about nimbleness, we're not predicting the market's about to blow up or fall apart. It's just the characteristic set changes and what you emphasize changes. And this, you know, this, and this is going to lead me when I into talking a little bit about dispersion. At this at this particular point in the cycle, I, I mean, we're sort of saying, yeah, you got to change your stripes a little bit, um, and the price chart matters. This is an easy way for our listeners: is pull the chart up. If it looks good, like that's okay. That means it has momentum. If it doesn't look good, that means it doesn't. And you know, trafficking and that kind of stuff is is going to be very difficult at this point in the cycle. It's not a point in the cycle where you want to be diving in and bracing controversy. By and large, that's at least we're not. So wanted to make that point. And then the last point I wanted to make, and we'll wrap up, which is, and I wanted both your opinions on this, is just, again, to kind of refresh our listeners. Again, if we kind of go through our own work, there is a clear, when you look at developed markets, dispersion in valuation is rising. So I get the question a lot, why is value underperforming? We make the we, we make the point that well your starting point was unprovocative that's point number one value wasn't cheap but dispersion in the U.S. dispersion in Europe dispersion in Japan um, UK maybe a little bit less so all through the first part of the year we've all we've seen it widen which is another way of saying cheap stocks have underperformed the average stock and they're definitely underperforming expensive stocks. And then when you flip over to emerging markets, dispersion isn't doing a whole lot, but it's generally speaking very wide. Asia, it's wide. Latin America, it's 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 pretty tight. Um, you know, Grant, maybe just for our listeners, can you kind of talk about that progression in dispersion? So as dispersion starts to rise, kind of how we think about the strategy overall, and then ultimately it leads to red flags, and that's maybe where I wanted to kind of hit on is like at what point is like, Rising dispersion is interesting for us because it's good for, you know, kind of growth strategies, but it, it also gets to a point where it gets dangerous and it's not good for anything. So I think that was kind of the, the topic I wanted to hit on. Well, it, it completely ties into our previous discussion, which is when momentum is outperforming and you're narrowing down into, you know, fewer and fewer securities that are, that are being, you know, still accepted by the market, those names go up and nothing else does or you know don't go up at the same rate and you start to build dispersion the expensive names that have a story that have momentum get more expensive and the other ones don't and like you just said it's you don't really want to embrace the controversy and you don't really want to dumpster dive and i would have added yet to that <laughs> because because as the dispersion widens it's creating the condition that you are creating dispersion, and then you will get to a point at some point where 
valuation dispersion will be wide enough that you're going to want to change your stripes again, and then you're going to become a value manager. Now, we have a, a framework that says we don't do that until our valuation dispersion gets to a certain level, which Brian you know, will point out to us you know, what those levels are for a given market. But, you know, that's, you know, the momentum effect is actually what's driving dispersion up as you narrow down. And, you know, when you start narrowing at a fairly quick pace, that leads us to a full growth domain, which we're not in yet. But, you know, we have signals that say, okay, you know, we've narrowed enough, we've gotten enough out of the momentum and, and some of the tools, like Brian said, we, our tools would say there's still more to be had out of the momentum factor, but, um, you know, we will, we will have a sig- signals that hopefully will follow reasonably correctly that will say at some point, okay, enough's enough and we need to, you know, take risk down. And then at that point, you're just holding powder or alternative, uh, you know, asset classes until the dispersion gets wide enough for you to go in and be the value manager, uh, you know, that you want to be. And, and you shift from buying the, the good chart to the bad chart in your, in, you know, in your previous analogy. So, um, you know, it, it works until it doesn't. And obviously, you know, no one's going to be perfect at, uh, at making that call, but, but Brian has a lot of indicators that we follow. And as we see this market narrow, you know, we will have to at, at some point, you know, change our, uh, our risk allocation and our equity allocation. And and we haven't done that yet. And we are concentrating the portfolio into, uh, and the strategy into more, uh, to fewer and fewer names, uh, that's still, have that momentum, but as as dispersion gets wider, that game gets tougher and tougher as it keeps widening out. And then at some point, you just have to uh, go to the sideline and wait for it to be wide enough to to buy value again. I, I think that's the the perfect operative point, and and I would just you know I would just add on top of that again the way we're structured and the discipline the kind of Brian and his team exact on the strategy is I think about it this way. I mean, if you're thinking about a nine inning ball game, our work is going to kind of force us to the parking lot and sort of the, the middle of the eighth. Like we're not going to see the ninth inning. We're like, beating the traffic. Yeah, we're beating hopefully. traffic. We're hopefully beating traffic home. We're at least getting on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, and I think, you know, again, that's the kind, I think that mentality is kind of the way you've got to think about dealing with momentum because you make the right point. You'll never time it correctly. So you either have to make the decision you're early or late. The problem with late is there's an inordinate amount of pain that's associated with late in a momentum strategy because, again, just by virtue of what you're doing, you're crowded with everybody else. And so the exit doors get really difficult. So it can be very painful to be early, too, though. It can, and, it, and I'm glad you bring that up because the, the alternative decision you have to make is being early. The trade off to being early is, you know, the investment returns on the blow off at the end can be actually pretty good. And so you'll get some, you'll catch some flack for missing that. And again, we've just made the decision that we're okay with that. That's just part of who we've got to be. Um, 
given you know the way we think about the strategy. And again, we'll never time any of this perfectly, so I don't want to obviously leave the impression that we will. Um, but I do want to leave the impression with there is that is the trade off you've got to make. You're either catching the last whatever percent in a momentum blow off, or you're not. The risk of the risk of leaving early is you miss that last gasp of returns, and obviously clients clients like those returns. Um, but you don't get all the negative associated with it. Um, and so we make that trade-off. But that, I think that was the perfect point and really what I wanted to make is that, look, we've started to see dispersion rise in developed markets. It's coming down in emerging markets slowly, but it's coming down. We've started to see it widen in diversion, de- developed markets. I don't know if that's the end-all, be-all. We've had some bouncing back and forth of dispersion, kind of widening out, then tightening back down, and widening out and tightening back down. Um, so, I, you know, don't know. But what we would say is if it continues to widen, that is going to force our work and it's going to exact discipline onto what we do. And again, Grant, to your point, um, the work that you're doing fundamentally just gets you know more important and more important and more important and you get narrower and narrower and narrower. So I, again, at some point that's going to happen because that happens in every cycle. Um, and I th- that will happen again in this cycle. I just wanted to kind of point out, given the way this year has started off of last year, which was a very growth-dominated year, um, I think surprisingly so for some people, we get tax reform, which saw a little bit of reflexivity in value relative to growth, and then immediately this year, you're back to kind of trend of growth outperforming in a really material way, and it's been large-cap growth. So Again, my compare is always run the, run the NASDAQ relative to the Russell 2000. If you want an easy chart of what we're talking about, you'll see that gap out as of, uh, as of the last couple of months. Um, that's just all that showing is sort of small value relative to large growth, and you've got to make that decision in our chair. So that's really where I kind of, that's really what I wanted to get to today. I don't think we need to belabor the point. And this is the thing that we will be highlighting, my guesses over the course of the year, is what is happening with dispersion, what is happening with momentum, what's happening with our own domain work. Because again, we, we are at a different point of the cycle than we have been post the financial crisis. And again, I'm, you know, I'm not an economist, thank God, and I don't have to be to make that proclamation. We can kind of see it from management behavior. We can see it from investor behavior. Um, as Grant pointed out, like the, the environment's changed some. So again, our antennas need to be up. So I think maybe with that, we'll, uh, we'll call it good for March. Um, hope everybody has a great spring break. Um, for those of you in the Northeast, hopefully, hopefully you're shoveling out of the avalanche of Nor'easter and, um, for the rest of the uh, country and our listeners and other places, um, we always appreciate your time, and we'll be back next month. Gentlemen, thank you very much this afternoon. Thank you.